I don't know about you guys, but one of my pet peeves is false advertising. And I feel like no one does this better than cell phone companies. You guys have you ever talked to a cell phone person, you know? They're like, oh yeah, we can get you one line for $25 a month and a second line for $10 and, and, and then, then a $10 data plan. And then I get my bill and it's like $180. Like, what, what happened to this $20 a line thing? Oh, that's taxes and fees, sir. It's taxes and fees, right? No one likes false advertising. Cell phones are just an easy target there. But it's always frustrating when someone holds out a, a promise of like, it's going to cost this much, or it's going to do this for you, or it'll perform in this way, whatever it is, and then it turns out to be a complete sham, right? That what looks good up front on the outside turns out to be something very different in reality. And that's what we see in today's text with this fig tree. And just as we walk through this, I want you to know that the fig tree is going to be the main focus of our uh, text this morning and our time this morning. Um, but before we get too far into that, I don't want to miss... Um, the disciples' response to this miracle of the fig tree. So Jesus sees this fig tree. He goes up to it. It's in leaf, so he assumes there's going to be fruit. There's no fruit, so he curses it, and it dies. And the disciples are like, whoa, that was crazy. How did you do that? Which I've always kind of thought, it's, shouldn't they just kind of be used to this stuff at this point, right? Like he's like healed people. He's done all these crazy miracles, but somehow, like, I guess the tree did something for him, right? That was, that was a new thing, right? But... The first thing we see in this text, again, I don't want to, we'll spend most of our time on the meaning of the fig tree before we get there. I don't want us to miss this, this point he makes with his disciples, and it's this, that Jesus is all-powerful. And we're seeing this played out right now in the book of Matthew. We're seeing that he has power over the religious leaders and authority. You remember, he rides into town on a donkey, he turns over the tables, he's asserting that he has authority over the temple, over God's people, more so than the religious leaders. We see that Jesus has all power and all authority. And he demonstrates it in this story that he has authority even over nature as well. That's something that by all natural standards would seem impossible that a tree would be look perfectly healthy and pristine and have all these leaves on it. He would say one word and that tree would just completely um, dry up and die. Just like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a crazy story. You can see why the disciples were so amazed by it. And what Jesus wants us to see in that, what he tells the disciples when they're so amazed by it, is he basically points them back to prayer. And he goes, that, that same power you just witnessed that just made this perfectly healthy tree just all of a sudden die and be without leaves, this, this thing you saw that you were so impressed by, you're going to say and do things even bigger than that. That the power that, that I used to curse the fig tree is available to you through a direct line to God in prayer. Let's look at it. Verse 21. And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but if even if you say to the mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So Jesus takes advantage of this, this moment when the disciples are so amazed and so impressed and just points into the idea that that kind of power is available to them through prayer. Now, Jesus gave a similar teaching several chapters ago in Matthew about prayer and even this idea of moving mountains. And we learned that moving mountains was uh, more of an idiom for anything is possible. Like, you can do anything. He's not encouraging them to rearrange the topography of Israel, okay? What he's telling them is just like, anything is possible for you through this power you have in prayer. 
But there's, there's a bigger thing going on in this, in this story of Jesus killing the fig tree. So let's just ask the question real quick. Why did Jesus kill this fig tree? Um, one thing you don't see in Matthew that you do see in Mark is that the tree was in leaf. And unlike a lot of trees, what you find if you research this is that a fig tree, when the leaves come on and when the fruit appears, is usually simultaneous. A lot of trees, you have the leaves for a while, then later on the fruit comes. With the fig tree, it all kind of happens at the same time. And this time of year would be early for fig trees to be blooming. So you wouldn't even really expect at this time of year a fig tree to be in leaf or have fruit on it. But there was one fig tree off in the distance, and it had all these leaves. So it's like, oh, awesome. We got an early bloomer here, right? Let's go. I'm hungry. Let's go get some figs. He shows up. There's no figs. And so he curses it and it dies. So let's, let's be clear here. Jesus is all-knowing. He's all-powerful, right? He's not surprised, right, that there's not um, figs on this tree. Like, he knows that. He's not throwing this divine temper tantrum of, dadgummit, stupid tree, dah, right? That's not what's going on here. I mean, it, it kind of looks like that on the surface, but he's using this tree as an object lesson to teach a much, much bigger thing. So essentially, the, 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 the object lesson here with this tree is that it's presenting a false front, is that on the surface, it looks like this tree is really healthy, and it looks like it's going to have fruit. It's going to be a really good, beneficial, helpful tree. But upon closer examination, that's found out to be nothing more than a false front, that the leaves make it look like it should have fruit, but indeed it doesn't. And Jesus is going to use this as a warning to those who look righteous on the outside, but inwardly are truly not seeking God. And you're going to see him play this out through three different parables. I, the, this story is of the fig tree, it's so you really have to zoom out to see the meaning of it um, and see the entire timeline. It's, it's easy to get rifle-focused in on this one little story and not see that it plays a bigger picture in the overall timeline. I wish there was like a, like a song or something about the timeline to kind of help us keep this straight. But look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 21, and just if you're watching, look at the, um, the subheadings here. The triumphal entry, right? So Matthew 21, that's when Jesus comes in as the king, he's declaring himself to be the heir of David, right? He's the king. And then one of the first things he does is in verse 12, he shows up and he clears the temple. That's what we looked at last week when he shows up into the outer courts and he starts turning over tables, driving people out with whips. He's very much asserting his authority over and above the current religious leaders and establishment that were ruling in a religious way at that time. And then you've got this story in 18 of him cursing this fig tree. Now watch what happens after this. In verse 23, we're going to read this in just a second, his authority is challenged. Some, some of those leaders who he's basically like coming into their home territory, they're not liking this. And so they challenge his authority. So then Jesus tells them three parables. Look at this. Verse 28, the parable of the two sons. 32, the parable of the two tenants. And in 21.1, the parable of the wedding feast. Now here's the deal. We're going to look at one of those today, but all three of those parables are all making the exact same point of the fig tree. All three of them are stories where it looks like on the surface, a person or a group of people are seeking the favor of their father or their master or someone like that. But then upon closer examination, it turns out that they're actually not seeking those things and they are cursed or killed for putting up this false front that they are one thing when actually, inwardly, something else 
is the reality. So, we're going to look at the challenge the Pharisees give to Jesus, and then we're going to look at Jesus' response in the first of those three parables. So, picking up in the story, Matthew 21, verse 23, says this, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders and the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So let's, let's recognize what's going on here, right? He's come, he's, he's acting like he runs the place, Jesus is. And right now, after he's turned over the tables and all that, the next day he comes back and he's in the temple with a crowd of people around him and he's teaching. So the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders at the time are thinking, who the heck is this guy? Like what makes he think he can just set up shop right here in the temple that we're supposed to be in charge of and just start teaching and draw a crowd to himself as if he has authority here. We talked about this um, several months ago that we should call Jesus the thunder thief, right? Because he was always stealing their thunder. Like, he shows up, all of a sudden, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they all kind of fade in the background, and everyone's talking about and looking at Jesus, and they're jealous. So they show up, and they're like, hey, by what authority do you do these things? And in one sense, it's not an odd question. I mean, in some sense, they are kind of doing their job. Those guys have been charged with oversight of the temple and all its proceedings, all the sacrifices, everything that happens, they're in charge of it. And so, in a sense, they're kind of doing their job by questioning who is this guy and who told him he could be here and by what authority is he saying and doing those things. So they ask him that. And before, and Jesus will eventually answer their question with these three parables, but before he answers their question, he exposes their hypocrisy with another question. So he says, I'll answer that if you ask me this. And he asks them a question that exposes their unworthiness to be a judge over such matters. So, so watch this. It's really, really crazy how Jesus does this. He basically comes back to them and he says, The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? So the chief priests, the religious leaders, they've got two options for you, right? They could say it came from man, which you find out is what they really believe, right? These guys weren't fans of John the Baptist. They basically had written him off as either a false prophet or a crazy guy. They didn't really believe the message and baptism of John the Baptist. It was outside of their establishment and what they were doing. Um, but if they were to say that to the people, it says they were afraid of the people. In other words, if they said, hey, we, don't, we think that was for man. We don't think John's message and his baptism, we don't believe that. We think it was bogus. Well, they were afraid to say that even though it was true because then the people would not respect him because the people loved John the Baptist, right? He was like a crowd favorite. So it's like, if we say that, we're going to lose a lot of respect, not even lose our position, so we're not going to go that route. Well, their other option is to basically lie and say, yeah, we believe it's from heaven. But if they said that, if they, in order to please the people, right, to kind of uh, give way to what the pressure would have them do at the time, if they said, well, we believe John was a prophet, we believe his baptism was from heaven, then they're answering their own question about Jesus. Because if John's baptism is of God and from heaven, well, who baptized Jesus? John. So then they're, by answering from heaven, they would be validating the authority by which they're answering their own question. And so they're stuck. So what do they do? They do what any good politician would do, and they just completely punt it, right? Like, um, you know what? We don't know. We'll have to get back to you on that, right? And they just basically give up. They don't even try. They, they're stuck. They're trapped, and they know it, so they just kind of try to slide out of it by saying that they don't know. 
And there's a warning for us in this, and what's going on with the chief priests and the religious leaders here. Because what's happening there is that Jesus exposed the reality that they were less interested in knowing truth and than they were in protecting their own appearance and position. These guys weren't really asking Jesus that because they wanted to know what the truth was, who he was, where he came from, what he was preaching, whether or not it was um, biblical sound, right? They were just worried about their own reputation. And I do think there's a warning there for us that sometimes we can find ourselves in a spot where we care more about the appearance than the reality of our relationship with God, right? I mean, if you're a parent, you know this all too well, right? I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but there's definitely times when I care a lot about my appearance and reputation as a parent. That how my kids act, what I'm not worried about so much is their hearts and why they're acting the way they are, but what people are going to think of me because they acted that way. And all of a sudden, I'm more worried about my appearance than I am the reality of their spiritual well-being and my walk with God and my role as a parent. I can be more worried about looking like a good parent than actually being a good parent. You can say the same thing about being a spouse or, or when someone mentions something and you're quick to say, man, I'll, I wanna, I'll pray for you for that. I want you to know I'm praying for you for that. What are, we, are we more interested in being known as a person who will pray for them and show that concern or have we actually spent time praying for them when we say those words? And I'm not, here, disclaimer, right? Like, we ought to care about our appearance, right? We ought to care about our reputation, right? That we would want to be men and women of good repute in our communities. That's, that's a valid thing. But like any other good thing, if it becomes an idol, and it becomes ultimate, and we're caring more about our appearance than our actual relationship with Jesus, then it becomes a big problem. We've got to be comfortable admitting our sin to each other. But the folly, again, of the, the religious leaders, the chief priests, is that they were really worried about presenting a good front, about making it look like they really had it all together. But what we're going to see later on is who Jesus kind of applauds is not the guys who put on this false front, but he basically says the kingdom is going to be given to prostitutes, and tax collectors before you. Well, what do we know about prostitutes and tax collectors? Well, they weren't putting on a false front. <laughs> they weren't trying to make it look like they were really holy and they had it all together. Instead, they came to Jesus acknowledging and admitting their sin, but knowing that they could trust him despite their sin. And too many of us, the longer we've been in church, especially elders, deacons, small group leaders, please hear this, there's a warning here that we would become more concerned about our reputation of godliness than our actual godliness in pursuit of the Lord within the church. And the more esteem and respect and positions you hold, the deeper this temptation gets. We've all heard stories, right, about pastors or leaders in the church who, man, they looked like they had it all together. But for months or years, there was something that no one knew about that was really destructive going on the whole time. Maybe it was an affair, maybe it was financial embezzlement, maybe it was an addiction to something, but we've all heard the stories where that person was doing a lot of work to project an image of godliness, and that projection 
became more important than the reality of whether or not they were truly pursuing a healthy relationship with Jesus. To the point where if I really start pursuing a healthy relationship with Jesus, I'm going to have to tell someone about this, and I may lose the esteem and the position I have, so I'm going to choose that appearance over the reality. I'm going to choose to protect my esteem and reputation rather than truly seek and submit to the will of God in my life. And I don't know about you, but when I hear those stories, I, I can't help but wonder, in any one of those stories, what would have happened if that man or woman in that situation would have on the very front end of that, when the first slip up or the first temptation or the first big thing that threatened their reputation, if they would have said, oh my gosh, I've got to nip this in the bud. What would have happened if they would have brought some, some men or women around them and said, hey guys, I've, you've got to know about this because I do not want to go down this path. And they would lose maybe a little bit of esteem and reputation, which you guys know that ironically, oftentimes when we confess sin, people, it actually has the opposite effect, right? People respect that. But we build this idea up in our mind, if, if I come out with that, man, I'm, I'm going to lose some esteem. I'm going to lose some reputation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose something of the image I've built up. But what would have happened if some of those guys would have just brought someone in on the front end, confessed that thing, and how much less destructive would it have been? So there's a warning here for us that the religious leaders, these chief priests, they, they cared more about their reputation. They did their actual walk with God, and it led to their destruction. So these people, though, that that's true of, they were, they were in charge at the time. The, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were the ones running the temple, right? This was their deal. This was their territory. They were, by God's appointment, in charge of this thing. But we're in this time in the book of Matthew when, when all that is about to change, right? Where again, Jesus has rode in, he's taken the place of king, he's claimed kingship over God's people for himself. He's exerting his authority by turning over tables, by teaching. He is basically saying in, in Texas terms, there's a new sheriff in town, right? He, he has come to topple and turn over the current religious authority. The transition is happening. And watch this little church history for you. This is A.D. 33, right? Same year that Jesus dies. In A.D. 70, less than 40 years later, this temple that all this is taking place in, you guys saw the pictures on the screen last week, this massive temple. It was like the temple was the, the epicenter of Jewish thought, life, and religion. It was like the icon of their nation, of their religion. It was, it was everything to them. In A.D. 70, that temple would be destroyed, completely wiped out, flattened. Meanwhile, this new order that Jesus is establishing right here, which Paul actually ironically calls the temple of God, this new temple that is the church, 40 years later, has spread like wildfire all over the known world. Things are changing. This is a a transition we're seeing take place. But by asking these guys this question about John the Baptist, he's exposing them for who they really were. These leaders were men who looked like they were submitting to God and searching for him, but actually were not. But unlike them, 
Jesus does not avoid the question, right? He doesn't completely dodge it. He does kind of call them out by asking them a question in return. But then he goes into three parables, a very extensive answer to their question of by whose authority do you do these things? And as he answers it, he's continuing to call out the fact that they're not truly seeking God. So look in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. We're going to read the first of these three parables. Jesus said this, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. So it's kind of a kind of a crazy story just right there, right? That this guy, he's a dad. He goes up to his son. It's probably his oldest son. He says, son, I really need some help. We're running behind. One of my guys just quit. I need you to work in the vineyard today. And he goes, no. <laughs> just straight up, no, I'm not going to do that, right? But then later, I guess he feels bad, and he's realized he's been selfish. I don't know. Who knows what happens? But he ends up going and helping in the vineyard. Verse 30, and he went, before that happens, he went to his other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. So his first son says, nah, I'm good. And he's like, all right, fine. So he goes to his second son. And he says, hey, if things are rough, I could use some help. Could you work in the vineyard? And the second son is like, oh, yes, sir. Absolutely. You, you can count on me, dad. I, I want to do your will, and I care about these things, so I will be in the vineyard that day. Well, well, then the twist comes, right? So what actually happens is the first son, who looks like he had no interest in the father's will and purposes, ends up being the one who helps. And the second son, who looked very interested and aligned with his father's will and wanted to submit to him, ends up not doing anything. Do you see it? The first son is like the prostitutes and the tax collectors. On the surface, at first, it looks like they are living in complete disregard to the will of the Father. But in reality, they are the ones that end up seeking after the Father's will. The second son talked a big game, but in the end, he was not actually seeking the will and to submit to the will of his Father. So, We're going to bring this back to the fig tree here in just a second. But before we do that, I want to bring up the kids. Because at Crosspoint, we, we really believe that the kids are just as much a part of the church as the adults. And four to five, or three to four Sundays of the month, um, the service is pretty much catered to adults. So once a month, we like to do some stuff that's kind of special for the kids. And so if you are fifth grade and down, if you would come up front. I've got my quilt again. I'm going to ask you guys to come up and join me up here. Scott, you want to give me a hand, please, sir? Y'all come up and grab a seat. Thanks, guys. Come on in. There's a bunch of y'all today. Maybe so. All right. Good night. We're going to need a bigger quilt. Shh. Quiet, Jackson. You're going to ruin it. Sit down. All right. Hi, Carmen. Can you sit down right there? All right. Goodness, lots of kids. This is awesome. All right, I got a quiz for you guys. Are y'all ready? Who can tell me Martin kids? You can't answer. Who can tell me what this is? A pecan. I got to say, you guys are much better than the first service kids. They, they guessed like five different kinds of nuts, and they couldn't get it. What's up, Josiah? 
You got one of these from our yard? All right. So here's the deal. How many of you, how about this? How many of you, raise your hand if you like pecans, like you eat, you like to eat them, pecan pie, like this thing? You never seen one? Well, you have to tell your parents, like, I'm going to try a pecan, okay? So this is what the pecan, actually, let me back up. When you see a pecan tree, they usually grow in clusters, usually two or three of these per cluster. So that's what a pecan looks like when it's on the tree. But once it starts to get ripe, it actually goes from green to being more brown. And then it'll fall off onto the ground. Then you can pick them up and eat them. So we have a pecan tree in our yard, and there's hundreds, hundreds of pecans. I mean, they are everywhere, right? So do y'all want to open one of them and see what's in it? Is that, does that mean you want to open it yourself? I'm going to open it. Y'all just watch, okay? Watch this. I got my, my cracker here. You watching? What in the world? Dead. Does that look like something you'd want to eat? No. no. That's nasty looking, right? Look, it's all, it's all like, there's probably even anything in there. It's like dirt, right? You wouldn't want, look at that. It's not a good pecan. There's probably anything you could even eat in there. It's all nasty and rotted. You know why? Because after that big freeze we had, y'all remember, y'all remember the big cold? The big cold this winter got really cold. It, it hurt this tree. And now if you look at this tree, it's got hundreds of pecans on it. But every single one of them is rotten. What? Yeah, for real. It's rotten on the inside. So, so Jesus tells us kind of a similar story about this fig tree that looks like it's got a lot of good stuff in it. But then when you get close, there's actually no fruit. It's kind of like this pecan tree. It looks like it's got all these great pecans, but then you get close and you open it, and it turns out it's all worthless, right? It's all rotten. So here's the deal. Here's what Jesus is trying to teach us with that. What Jesus is saying is that we're a lot like these pecans, that deep inside, because of sin, we have some things in us that are rotten and that are displeasing to God, right? How many of you guys have ever done something bad or thought something bad? Yeah? So those things that you've done and thought bad, God doesn't like those things. But guess what? God knows every bad thing you've ever done. But guess what? He still loves you. And so there were people when Jesus was around who tried to impress him, that they would put on fancy clothes and do a lot of good things and give a lot of money, thinking that if we do all these things, God will be really impressed and we'll make him think we're not rotten on the inside. We'll put on a nice pretty shell and make him think that we've got it all together. But deep down, all of us have some things in our hearts because of sin that are rotten. But guess what? Jesus loves us anyways. And he sent his son to die for or Jesus died for us so that we could be made whole again, so that we could be revived and renewed into what God wants us to be. But what Jesus wants for us is not to act like we don't need him to do that, but to admit that we are rotten on the inside because of sin and that we need his love and his grace and his mercy to be restored into a right relationship with God. Does that make sense? So when you pray, you don't want to come before God like you have it all together or try to impress him with how good you are. When you pray, you come to God and you, you, you can bring to him all the bad things you've done and tell him that you need his forgiveness and his mercy because you're trusting in his love for you and not in your ability to do everything right. Does that make sense? All right. Who wants a rotten pecan to take home? 
Anybody? Y'all can come get one later. Y'all go back to your seats. Thanks, guys. Yeah. I think it's um, when we do these illustrations with um, fruit, we usually think about fruit being um, evidence of good works, right? Most of the time the Bible talks about our fruit being a result of our faith, that it's, it's the good things, our, our righteous works that we do because Jesus has transformed us in our hearts. But in this particular illustration, the, the fruit is not good things that come out of faith in Jesus. The fruit is faith in Jesus, right? The, 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 the missing component for the Pharisees and the chief priests and the religious leaders isn't the good things they were doing. It's that they didn't recognize their need of the Messiah, that they were trying to, to put it all together on their own. John 6, 28, some people are talking to Jesus and they're saying, what, what good things must we do to enter the kingdom? I want you to watch what he says. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so the application for us is similar to that of what we talked about with the kids, is that number one, we shouldn't try to hide our sins from Jesus, right? That the people in the story, Jesus applauded were not those who tried to dress themselves up and make themselves look really good and righteous, but the people like the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes who they knew. Can you imagine when Jesus came up to these people, the, the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, they encountered Jesus, and they, like Matthew, right, likely thought, there's no way I would ever have any place of prominence or um, a role to play in God's work, in God's kingdom. I'm a tax collector. I'm a prostitute. That's, that's too different worlds. I do not belong there. I'm not worthy of that. But Jesus is telling me he wants me to be part of this. But Jesus said, hey, come to me just as you are. Come to me. Now we know, right, that Jesus doesn't intend for us to stay that way, to continue in sinful lifestyles and patterns. But the reality is that when we talk about not trying to hide our sin from Jesus, we we'd be better off to identify with these prostitutes and tax collectors than we would to identify with these religious leaders who thought they had it all together, right? That the first thing Jesus wants from us when we come to him is not deeds, but dependence. That what Jesus wants from us when we come to him is not to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves presentable, but just to recognize our unworthiness, our filthiness, our, our desperate need to be made righteous and cling to him. Not cleaning, but clinging. We can spend our whole lives trying to maintain the appearance of a holy life and deep down not truly be seeking to know Jesus. And I can't, I can't help but think when you hear this idea of this, this fig tree, right? This, what did this fig tree do? Essentially, it was a, a sick tree right? Like my pecan tree. It was a sick tree, unable to produce fruit. It was broken, right? But it put on this false front that everything was great, right? It had these leaves to make it look lush and fruitful, right? It was putting on a false front 
with what? With fig leaves. I can't hear that and not think of Genesis. Where what happens? If you know the story, Adam and Eve sin in the garden, then all of a sudden they realize they're naked and they're ashamed and they're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm... I'm unworthy to become before this holy God. I'm embarrassed of what I've done, of who I am. I'm ashamed. There's, there's something bad about this, and I need to cover it up with some fig leaves. So I'll put on a whole bunch of fig leaves and try to cover this up. But you see what happens is God's not fooled by that. God doesn't look at their fig leaves and go, oh, you guys look good, right? No, he comes to them, and he knows that, like, what they've done. And he confronts them in their sin. But then you know what he does? He goes and he kills an animal and wraps them in an animal garment to cover the shame for what they've done. He provides for them in the midst of their sin and failure by something's death. So this fig tree ought to, in a roundabout way, right, point us back to the gospel. Like the Pharisees were kind of making, the, the chief priests, the religious, they were kind of making the same mistake. Like they were putting on a bunch of leaves to make it look like they had everything figured out. And because of that, we're unwilling to just say, God, you know what? I need you to do this. I need you to make me righteous by your grace, by your love, by your mercy, by your work, because I cannot do this on my own. And when we do that, what Jesus does is he provides, through his own death, a covering for our sin. And we see that that whole thing in the garden was played out, that the, the fig leaves and trying to cover it up, and then God killing something to, to make up for their sin, to cover them in their sin, was just a shadow of what Jesus would do on the cross. And so, if we walk away from this with anything this morning, I hope we walk away with just this, this warning to not approach God in a way that we're trying to make it look like to him and to others that we've got this thing all together. But that like the, fairs, like the tax collectors um, and the prostitutes, that we would recognize our need and cling to Jesus knowing that his death on the cross is what covers our sins. And that we could never build up enough fig leaves to make it right on our own. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Um, thank you that you have brought us here again to remind us that we can't do this on our own. That we need you to cover our sin. And God, I pray that, I just pray that we would walk away maybe being less concerned over the appearance of godliness and be reminded today to truly be people who just know that we need you and want to pursue you, that want to know you, that find our identity, our being, our life, our everything in our relationship with you to the point that that how we look on the outside to others just kind of fades as long as we can have a strong, intimate relationship with you. God, would you help us become that people in Christ's name? Amen.